On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about Hamilton City Council. What a shock. We talk about that a lot, as do most of the podcasts here. But we're going to be talking about a meeting that was held on Wednesday at which the idea of a mountain arena was discussed. Got voted down. Looks like it is dead in the water. But Councillor Brad Clark, in the midst of this, brought up a very, very, very good and very important point. We're going to talk to him about that. Stick around to hear that. We're also going to be chatting about the Amber Alert system that we all believe is important, and yet that just seems, again, needs work. This could be so good and so useful and so well done, and yet it seems to be falling down way too often. We'll be chatting about ice wine, Needs no more introduction than that. We're chatting about wine. What more do you want? And we'll be talking about cheating in baseball. Where's the line? Because cheating, there's cheating and there's cheating. But where is the line between those two? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There was a long general issues committee meeting, which is sort of a branch of city council. All of city council is in on this one, but it was a long meeting today. A lot of things were discussed. And then... They finally dove into, I mean, they got to LRT and a bunch of other things, but then they finally dove into the idea of the arena on the mountain. This is Michael Andlauer, owner of the Bulldogs, made this proposition to build it alongside or as part of Lime Ridge Mall. And the city asked staff to come up with a report, which they did, which says, no, we don't want to go ahead with this. It's a bad idea. And that was what was being discussed today at this meeting whether or not to go any further to explore the idea of building an arena at the mall. Well, ultimately, the vote was overwhelming. It was 11 to 3 to support the staff report, which means the arena at the mountain appears to be a dead-in-the-water idea. But in the midst of this, and there was a lot of stuff that was said, believe me, a lot of words were expressed. (laughs) A lot of words were spoken. But in the middle of it, the man who was chairing this meeting, Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark, uh, had something very important, I think, and very relevant to say, and he joins us now. Brad, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Scott? I'm well. I know you're uh, on the way home on the bus or something, so we'll, uh, you know, give you something to do on the the long trip home (laughs) after a long day. Uh, Look, as I say, there were a lot of words said, a lot of opinions expressed, some of them which, frankly, uh, came across to me as... Uh, almost insulting to the owner of the Bulldogs for and the concept of it, but we can get into that a different day. But you said something in the middle of it or near the end that I thought was really important, and that was, look, we may vote down the idea of the state of the arena on the mountain, but we can't sit on this idea, on this revitalization of whatever we're going to do downtown or wherever. We can't sit on this forever and delay this forever and obfuscate forever because eventually the owner of the team is going to leave, the team may leave, we may lose all kinds of other stuff. So when you say that, and and bravo to you because you're absolutely right, but what do you think are the chances that actually happens, that something is decided on and some action is taken with some speed? Um, It is my personal opinion that Mr. Landlauer's proposal has been a bit of a catalyst, if you will, um, and a wake-up call for council. And I suspect, and I know that staff have been given some pretty clear direction, that they're going to to come back relatively quickly with some answers and start to move on some of these these, uh, decisions that, that are long overdue. You'll forgive a little bit of skepticism on my part because, yes, will. Uh, well, because I mean, a lot of these things, a couple of reasons. One is we know that historically, at least in recent history, big decisions like this have taken a very long time at Hamilton City Council. That's the first thing. Well, a decision do take a long time in every uh, city council in the province of Ontario, and I dare say across the country, because there's an awful lot of procedure that needs to be followed. And a lot of things that need to be done in order to ensure due diligence on behalf of the municipality. That being said, um, to use the the football analogy, balls do get dropped. And from time to time, uh, we find ourselves in situations where uh, we've become distracted with other items or other projects. And, uh, oh, yeah, we did make that decision and we didn't follow up on it. So I I think in this case, you know, we're, we're at the point where... 
Mr. Andlauer, as, as, as clearly expressed, expressed his exasperation, he wants to move forward, and uh, it wasn't happening fast enough for him. Those were his words. Uh, and, and so the, the, the ball is clearly in the council's court. We, we have to, to move expeditiously uh, to fix this. Um, and I was told very clearly that the downtown arena is not prohibitive to repair, um, but that we have to start making decisions in order for things to happen. And the second part of my skepticism then, if you'll forgive it again, is that the, uh, okay, if the downtown arena is rehabilitatable, and the report said that it was, there were a lot of comments around the table, around the council table, with a lot of different opinions about what we want to do, whether we want the dist- the, the entertainment district to get all built up and decided on and, and this critical mass, or whether we want to start on this, or we don't know that we have a business person or, or, or companies ready to step in right now or the land to do this there's a lot of questions and it seems to me with so many questions how do you then move quickly when there seem to be so many loose ends not tied up well i can only speak to uh, what has happened in the last year and i can say that staff have been meeting with different uh, private sector investors and proponents who have an interest and uh, we're expecting a report to come back february 5th that will answer some of these questions do you expect the report on February 5th to name other people, other developers, other investors, other builders in the city who want to get involved? Um, I don't know whether or not they will name them in a public report. I know that there are, they have had conversations and they've shared uh, the fact that they've had these conversations with different companies and that there is interest. And it's, 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 we really need to be told the so that we can start to move forward. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Councillor Brad Clark, Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark, who chaired the General Issues Committee meeting today. Lots going on today. He joins us. And Brad, I want to change tack a little bit because before we got to the arena discussion that we were just having, you were talking about the LRT. Uh, look, at City Council meeting, probably there's always some ta- some reason to talk about the LRT. But in that discussion, uh, you made your, I was going to say your second great point of the day. It was really your first. This is the arena was the second one, but I thought you were on your game today because you pointed out, I don't even know who you were talking to, to be honest, because I was watching it from the live stream, but you were challenging somebody within the council chambers about being hypercritical, overly critical, unnecessarily critical of Queens Park and of the Ford government, not that criticism can't be warranted, but that perhaps you have to choose your words a little bit carefully because words have an impact and your word was, I believe, Hamilton needs Ontario more than Ontario needs Hamilton. That's correct. Uh, And I believe that to be the case. At the end of the day, uh, the province of Ontario is a senior funding partner for the city of Hamilton and they just simply don't fund LRT. They fund land ambulance, they fund social housing, they, they fund the public health department, they, they fund transit. There's lots of things that they're funding. And all of their funding decisions, 100%, Scott, are in some way or shape or form discretionary to the province of Ontario. And so while there may be formulas involved, uh, the reality is that uh, the cabinet ministers have an awful lot of, of, of discretion. And so I challenge my colleagues that it's important that we remember to respect the order of government, respect the office of the premier, and respect their authority. We may not agree with them. You can always find a diplomatic way to be critical, but we, we have to be careful to use language that doesn't insult or inflame a situation to the point where now they don't want to even talk to us anymore. And, and that's my fear. And, and even though I, I can certainly understand why some councillors would be angry with the province, have you heard some of those comments? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, and they've been public comments, and it's, not, it's unnecessary. Um, and, and so I, I just, I, I, was, I was simply very diplomatic with not trying to admonish anyone, and I didn't identify anyone, reminding them that we have a relationship with our senior levels of government, that we have to be respectful in our communications in public, and we can have very um, aggressive conversations in private, but in public, 
You want to be respectful of them, just as you would ask them to be respectful of us and our decisions in public. You've sat in a cabinet position with the provincial government. Was it, were you aware when people in municipal governments were taking shots at you? 100%. Every single morning a cabinet minister meets with their staff and their staff goes over what they call issues of the day. And they go through every article that's printed in, in, in the province of Ontario. They bring it to the cabinet minister's attention. And we're well aware of what municipalities are saying about um, mayors um, or, or, or about uh, premiers, about ministers, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it, it, it's, it's not that the statements are being said in a vacuum. They're being stated. They're being printed and published in public. Um, and the cabinet ministers are well aware of this. And, and it, it can, and it, in my experience, it does influence cabinet decisions. Well, how can it not? I mean, even if you say, I mean, you're a human, even if you say I'm going to be completely objective about this kind of thing, uh, if you hear some mayor or some councillor from some city bashing you long enough and hard enough, you can't, I would think you can't help but have it affect your opinion of them. And and that's the point. I mean, it's one thing to to say that we disagree with their decision. It's another thing to use um, um, colloquial words to describe motives and character of uh, cabinet ministers and the premier. And and I just was trying to caution people to be careful. It's okay for the public to do that. Politicians expect that. But we have a working relationship with our senior levels of government, and you wouldn't want to go to your boss, for example, and say you're a lying idiot and you can't be trusted and your word is not worth anything because you know that your boss is going to, to take it out on you at some point. So at the end of the day, a municipality is a creature of the province of Ontario, and we need to acknowledge that, understand it, and simply respect them and be respectful in our communications. And especially to say those things when you're going to go back to them cap in hand a week later asking for something else, right after you've just called them a lying idiot who can't be trusted. There are millions of dollars in funding that is outstanding for the city of Hamilton, that we need from this, the, the province of Ontario, um, and I, I'm well aware of, of much of it. Uh, so the, the challenge is, um, if, you, if you say something incredibly nasty about the Premier as mayor or council in public, will that Minister of Health, will that Minister of Transportation, um, a Minister of Housing, um, take that comment and say, well, if that's what they think of us, then why are we going to help them? And there are other municipalities who are playing the game much more professionally, much more respectfully, and they'll, and they'll divert money there. And, and so we'll, we'll have funding applications delayed or not approved. And that's my biggest fear. It is. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant point. I really did, because I think it gets lost an awful lot of times. That whether you agree or disagree with the government, they are people, they are human beings, and they are going to remember. People do have memories. Uh, it's, I'll listen, the, it's, it's the dynamics of human nature, so we have to be aware of it. That's all. I will let you get off the bus. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Thanks very much. That was uh, Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was something, people have been talking about this all week. I haven't gotten to it, mostly because I didn't want to knee-jerk jump into this thing because it's a topic that has great merit and great value and great import. And you don't want to be dumping on something that is a good thing. And I'm talking about the alert we got on Sunday for the Pickering nuclear meltdown that wasn't. And generally what we've used this for is for Amber Alerts, which seems like a very worthy thing. And let's be honest, if you have been critical of the Amber Alert system in the past, you've been accused of being hoping that children die and on and on. I mean, it's like there is great passion involved in this and I can... To some degree, see why? Because if a pa- if an Amber Alert works and a child is returned safely, it's been a success and that's a good thing. And to complain that maybe you were woken up is rather petty. And I don't think too many people are going to disagree with that. And yet, Sunday comes along. And it's a reminder that, you know what? Good ideas aren't always executed well. And a good idea that has good merit behind it 
that has good intentions behind it sometimes can be improved, but it seems as though, and I don't know why, but it seems as though the people who are behind this system are either not able or unwilling to fix or improve the system that we want to have, but could absolutely be done better. Let me give you an example. And I'm happy to hear from you on this one if you agree or disagree. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. When the Amber Alert goes off, and I'm in support of the Amber Alert, I'm in support of the Amber Alert program, as I say, if one kid is saved, it seems to me that it's made its money, it's been worth its while, all that kind of stuff. And if it wakes me up, so be it. However, when the Amber Alert is for a kid that is abducted in Sudbury, let's say, and it's now two in the morning, I'm not sure that the alarm that goes off that causes people to have heart attacks in the middle of the night is essential because you wake up and you go, wait a second, I'm lying in my bed in Hamilton. I'm in bed. I'm not on the highway. I'm not on the streets. It's, I'm, I'm not helping with this search right now. Some less egregious alarm could have done the job. If you're out in the car, if you're doing something, you would still hear it. If you're in bed, it's not going to cause you to freak out. But that's not even the biggest point because apparently the same alarm that goes off for Amber Alerts goes off for national emergencies, which potentially this Pickering plant thing was going to be. And what has happened now because of Amber Alerts with these alarms in the middle of the night, what's happened? It's become a system like the boy who cried wolf. When you've been woken up five times, six times, 10 times by the Amber Alert system while you're asleep, then each time you grab your phone because you're scared half to death and you look and you see child abducted in Sault Ste. Marie, child abducted in Ottawa, child abducted in Windsor, you put your phone down and eventually you get to the point where you don't bother to check anymore because it almost never or never applies to you. And then you get something like a potential meltdown at a Pickering nuclear plant. And I wonder how many people just ignored it. And if it had truly been an emergency, we've now created this system where a true emergency we don't even pay attention to. And I'm just, I'm absolutely convinced that this system can be done better not abandoned, not shut off. I'm not arguing that nobody should be waking me up in the middle of the night for a missing child. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I believe they've created a system now that we are not even really paying attention to. So the intent of the system has been lost. And I go back to my point. What if that alarm on Sunday morning that we probably, that most people probably basically ignored because we expect, well, it's, I'm, I'm in bed. What am I going to do to help with a, a, a missing child? As much as I want that child to be found, I am not very helpful when I'm lying in bed hundreds of miles away. What if that alarm that was going off had been because there was like the Mississauga train derailment with chemicals or, or the one in Lac Magantique in Quebec? What if, what if there was something, an alarm that had gone off because there'd been a giant train crash or truck crash on the 403 through Hamilton, through Ancaster with a truck filled with chemicals that was exploding and they were telling all of us to do something for our own safety. And because we've now been so used to hearing these alarms, we don't pay attention anymore. Surely there is a better way. Surely there is a way to take this system and make it work in a way that is more applicable to our lives. We, come on, we, we, we have the technology, certainly. If I can set ringtones for each member of my family so that I get a unique ringtone, depending which of my kids or my wife is calling, surely they can set an alarm that is different for different situations so we pay attention, no? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about Sunday's Pickering alarm alert thing. And, and if you're saying, well, why are we talking about it now? We're talking about it now because I didn't want to jump on it right away because for a couple of reasons, but one of the things was it seems as though anyone who raises any thoughts or 
suggestions or isn't fully on board with everything the Amber Alert does and doesn't and suggests that maybe there's improvements that can be made. People say, well, you're all about then just wanting your sleep over the health of kids. You don't mind if kids are kidnapped or died. No, that's absolutely not it. In fact, it's the opposite. I want a system that works better than the one we have that I don't think is working very well. I think we should expect that we can have a system now in this province that does far, far better than what we've got. And that distinguishes between a child who's abducted and a potential national or regional catastrophe. I don't think that's too much to ask. And I certainly don't think that we would be hard pressed to find the technology that, for example, the Pickering thing, would it not have made more sense that if this thing was going to be something that you, they figured that we needed to know this. They figured that people around Ontario needed to know that something had maybe happened at the Pickering nuclear plant. What about a voice message? Although that may have freaked you out while you were asleep in the middle of the night, but what about a voice message of, you know, please take cover or something? I mean, whatever. It just appears as though this has been done in a way that is not thought very well through. So that we now have reached the point where we hear this thing and many people, even if they won't admit it, are just ignoring it because uh, it never applies here. Because the most of the alerts, most of the warnings have never applied to the Hamilton area, but we get them from everywhere. So that when the day comes that one does matter in the Hamilton area, we will not be paying attention. Jean joins me on the line. Jean, how are you? Fine, thank you. And you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for calling in. What do you think about this? Well, I wanted to let you know I didn't get any alert on my phone. Really? Was your phone, was the sound off? No. Well, that is uh, unusual. <laughs> you you must have got the special phone then, Gene. I'm not sure, because most people were awoken. And again, now, if you had, would you have, if it was a missing child, are you one of the people who objects to being woken up in the middle no, of the night? I'm not. For the short amount of sleep I'd miss, no. I agree. That I said... And I'm concerned to those who do get upset that one day there will be an emergency and they're not going to respond. See, that's my point exactly. It's not about the fact that we don't want to be woken up. It's that there's got to be a way to do this that makes us not become numb to it. Yeah, and I like your idea of the different bell rings. Yeah, thank you, Gina. I I, I think that's a trip. My sister has a phone and she's got different bell rings for different things. And so it's possible to uh, be done. But um, the first I knew of it was um, when my friend's uh, cell phone went off to alert them that it was um, the emergency was over. Gene, I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Here's the other problem I have with this system right now that should be better. And I'm going to say it one more time. Because I don't want anyone confused about this. I am not opposed to the system. I am 100% pro this Amber Alert system. I just think that we can do things better. I want to know how it is that so often it seems when we have a missing child somewhere, it takes hours and hours for this thing to get put online so that we all... I can't remember the last Amber Alert for a missing child that didn't seem to arrive in the middle of the night. It, there's obviously steps that have to be taken to get this put up there. It's not just one police officer or something pressing a button saying go. There's obviously steps and increments to make sure that this is a useful, appropriate use of the Amber Alert system. So it takes a long time, it seems. And yet, somehow, even though nothing was really happening at the Pickering nuclear plant, this alert was able to go through and... Where were all these steps and these people saying, wait a second, are we sure we want to set this thing off? That didn't seem to come. This system is a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant idea that right now is terribly flawed and should be great. And hopefully, hopefully 
This particular one that has a lot of people fired up because, let's be honest, waking up at 2 or 3 or whatever time it was in the morning, 7, I don't know what time it was, I was dead asleep, and seeing that all you see is incident and pickering nuclear plant. Look, I'm in Hamilton. Didn't really affect me all that much. But could you imagine if you lived in Oshawa or Pickering or Clarendon or any of those places around there and that's what woke you up? Hopefully, this is the impetus that we finally get a system that works as well as it should because we all want kids to be safe. We all want our safety if there is a huge catastrophe somewhere and some good way to be notified and know that we really do have to pay attention to this. Because right now, You want to know something? Next time the alarm goes off, it'll wake everybody up. And I bet you 75% of people won't even bother. And if that's the case, why have the system? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, This month is the Niagara Ice Wine Festival, or at least the Niagara Ice Wine Festival is going on this month. Dozens of wineries in the area around here are involved in this, meaning that you have all kinds of opportunities to sample ice wine, which is something that I'm not sure how many people have actually tried this, mostly because most of the time when you go to consider getting ice wine or when you think about ice wine, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, man, that stuff's expensive. And I'm way too cheap. I'll buy my box of $3 Ruby Rouge instead. Well, It's a big deal, especially around here. I want to bring in Britt Dixon, who has worked in the wine industry, including at the the Cool Climate, I don't even know how you say that word, and Viticulture (laughs) Institute at Brock University. What is that word, Britt? Enology. 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 Yeah, it means wine, the study of wine. Oh, well, see, why don't they just call it wine then? (laughs) That's true. It sounds fancier. It sounds way fancier. It's like the ice wine of words. (laughs) That's right. Um, It's by the way, for those who are wondering what the heck I'm talking about, the word is O E N O L O G Y, (laughs) and um, and okay, well, if you say like winology, it kind of can be almost similar. So there you go. I learn something every day. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you doing this. Um, Why do okay ice wine? We've heard about it. Really, it seems like about 20 years that it's become a big, big deal. Maybe it's longer than that. I know it goes. No, no, it goes back to like the 1700s in Germany, I believe. But yes, but you know, in Canada, it's really the the early 90s that really sort of put Canada on the map in terms of its ice wine production. And now Canada is a world leader when it comes to ice wine. And what was it in the 90s? Did we suddenly have a winery or a vineyard that left wine of of grapes on the vine or something? Like, was it an accident that we did this, or was there a conscious decision that we were going to start making this? They actually started producing um, ice wine in the late 70s in Canada, but it was the early 90s that one of the wineries um, in Eskillen for their Vidal ice wine won a really prestigious um, international award in Bordeaux, France. And, and that sort of put Canada on the map for its ice wine production. You know, you look at it, Canada's a world leader, and there's millions of dollars worth of ice wine exported every year from Canada. And when Inniskill and then won that, did it become a situation where if you want to be a credible big time winery, you better pop one of these out? Uh, I feel like ice wine is something that a lot of people are doing because it's so iconically Canadian mm. and and we do it so well. We have the perfect weather, the perfect climate for it. Um, you know, these are grapes that are left to freeze on the vines. They're not um they're not picked until the temperatures drop to minus 8 degrees or below. Usually most wineries will wait until it's about minus 10 or 12, and those grapes have gone through a couple of freeze-thaw cycles to really um, concentrate those sugars and the acids, and then they're picked. So when you think about our winters, the, it's perfect for ice wine production. <laughs> I mean, it does sound, and I've not been involved in picking grapes in the middle of winter when it's freezing cold and all the rest, but it sounds like a giant pain in the butt to have to do it. <laughs> It's a really cool experience. I Literally. Feel like, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but it's, some, it's kind of magical. It, yes, you're freezing, but you're out in the middle of the night and, you know, the snow-covered vineyard and you're creating or picking this, these grapes to create this really great product. And um, when the grapes, they're pressed once they're still frozen, so you get like a small amount of sweet concentrated juice that's just bursting with flavor. Um, it's a smaller, um, a smaller yield that comes from the grapes. It's a big risk because you're leaving those grapes on the vine for longer, you know, um, frost damage, um, birds and different wildlife, leaving them at risk for those things. So 
it's kind of a big gamble every year, um, but but it produces this really fantastic wine that I think people get really excited about because, like you said off the top, it's unique. It's this luxury item. Um, it's not something that we might not we might not drink every day. Um, so it ends up being a really kind of special product. Here's my admission, and I, you know I don't know if this is a good admission or a bad admission. I don't know if this is going to endear me to people or make them think I'm a moron. I've had ice wine once in my life. What? I, I know once, and it, I listen. It was it was great. It was fantastic, yeah. and I was really kind of surprised. Probably is the first time drinker that, uh, and this is an obvious thing. It's so incredibly sweet. And when I was talking to people today, they said, I, you know, some people who love it, some who can't stand it. It's always because it's so sweet. It is very sweet, and a lot of people associate it with a, a dessert wine, but the really great thing about something like the Niagara Ice Wine Festival, where there's about 40 different wineries taking part, you can buy this passport and go around to different wineries and try the different wine and food wines. you get to experience ice wine in a really different way, because a lot of those wineries will pair it with sweet foods, but a lot of them will pair it with savory foods, things like blue cheese, um, what else have I seen on that passport? Mac and cheese, you know, comfort food, spicy dishes like Thai food and curries, things like that to really give you uh, a cool, unique experience to, for you to see that ice wine isn't just to have a dessert. And you know, pairing it with different foods like that really changes the flavor um, and kind of moves it away from that thing that you don't really know a lot about that doesn't really seem accessible and it's made a heck of a lot more accessible when you have festival that celebrates it and, and all those wineries are opening those bottles for you to try and experiment and learn more about. It's a pretty cool thing. I was looking today before I was going to chat with you because there is a perception, and I think it's largely accurate, that ice wine is not inexpensive because of all the things you just said, the small batches and the number of grapes and mm-hmm. the, the risk and everything else. It, it's You're probably going to, at least the thought is, spend a good amount of money to buy, and the bottles are always very small. Mm-hmm. Yet I, I found there was some ice wine on sale at the LCBO for seven ninety five. That's seven dollars and ninety five cents, all the way up to four hundred and ninety nine dollars and ninety five cents. Would the average person really be able to tell the difference? Um, I think that a lot of the time, I, I feel like a general price point, you know, anywhere, you know, twenty five to forty dollars fifty sixty and like you said those those prices go right up because it is a big risk um, to to produce this type of wine and, and you get sort of less less yield when you're when you're trying it so you know it's not the same sort of thing that you pick up every day to drink but I don't know if you necessarily want to pick up ice wine every day to be a to diabetic drink. <laughs> you don't drink it the same way that you that you drink regular wine with which makes it special, and, and that makes it, um, when, when festivals like this come up to celebrate something like this, you know, there's some really amazing events happening, and um, it, makes it, it makes it a little bit more unique, and yeah, I think, I think it's a great opportunity. I was trying to, trying to guess what a $7.95 bottle of ice wine, where it comes from, I was thinking, it must have just been made from raisins. They just yeah, left the raisins know, outside exactly. and, and squashed them. Price, so. <laughs> but but I was also reading that, it, it, that there was a thing, and, and this is one reviewer, but they said basically anything under about $30, $35 was made with adulterated grapes. That was their word, which sounds, you know, vaguely inappropriate. But what does it, what does it mean when they say it's made with adulterated grapes? So um, real, true ice wine um, in, in Canada, you, you'll want to look on the bottle for the, the VQA symbol. And that means that it's, it's made strictly from Ontario grapes. And they, um, these producers have to abide by really strict um, rules when it comes to production. So they have to wait until it's minus 8 degrees before they pick. They have to make sure that the grapes um, have naturally frozen on the, on the vine, that the sugar levels are at a certain level, that you know, it's not less than 100 grams per liter when it comes to sugar, that the alcohol is between you know, 7 and 14%. Um, so there's very strict rules that that those producers have to um, adhere to when they're producing this. And then you know that it's a true ice wine. And that comes from um, that. The price point is also attributed to that because a lot of the times, you know, in, um, in foreign markets, like China is one of the areas where the, it, that Canada exports a lot of ice wine to. And a lot of the times um, in some of those markets, um, you'll see fake ice wines, you know, things that are made with added sugars um, and things like that, not made by the, the strict rules that there are here. So the quality is going to suffer in that case. When you say that the, in order for this to be real ice wine, it has to be frozen on the vine, you yes. couldn't 
pick a whole bunch of grapes in the middle of the harvest and throw them in, honestly, and throw them in a no. freezer and then squeeze them no. later? No, that's, no, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, they have to naturally freeze on the vine. And um, I think part of the regulations, you know, typically people aren't allowed to pick before um, November 15th, because a lot of the times it doesn't get cold, or cold enough before then. This year, of course, we had that really cold snap um, early November, and a lot of the wineries were ready to pick because we dropped below that. Um, so some of them did pick on November 12th and 13th. That was the earliest pick on record. And even to do that, they have to get in touch with um, VQA um, to let them know we're going to be picking um, and sort of get the okay from them to make sure that, that they're still adhering to all of those regulations. So it's very strict, which comes with, you know, the, uh, the, the top quality that we produce here in Canada. And it's funny you mentioned about the picking, because I, I was thinking we've had a really weird winter where, we you know, even last week, I think it was up to like 14. And I'm wondering, does that mean that if you didn't pick it in that first big freeze and it froze and then it thawed again, it was very, very warm. Is that crop for those people who decided to ride it out? Is that ruined? Are we going to have a, no. a lean year for ice wine? No. And I think just a lot of people, you know, the earlier you get those grapes off the vine, the less risk they're at in terms of being damaged by frost or eaten by birds, because obviously the longer those grapes stay on those vines, the sweeter they get. And, you know, the more, um, the more um, susceptible they are to, to being, you know, damaged. So, to pick earlier, it's kind of a peace of mind thing for those producers. So when we have cold snaps early on, it's fantastic for them. A lot of the times, so, you know, a typical ice wine harvest will happen between December and February. A lot of the times it happens between Christmas and New Year's. So I think, you know, if you're working at a winery and you'd rather pick early November than get out there, you know, between Christmas and New Year's in the middle of the night to, to do your picking. So. Oh, and it has to be in the middle of the night, right? For full, well, uh, for, so you, when you take the video for your website, it has the more, uh, you know, beautiful tones and colors and everything. It's, it's got nothing to do with picking the grapes. It's just for the, the appearance, right? For what, sorry? For picking in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, it does look, it, it looks <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of magical. A lot of the times it's, early, it's middle of the night or early hours in the morning because that's when, when the weather gets the coldest. This, um, let me go back for one second. We only have a few minutes left here, but it, the, the perception with ice wine, I think, and you may disagree, but you may agree. The perception again is price. This is a, a treat because you're going to be paying more for ice wine than for normal wine. Does price in your mind automatically or almost always tie in or equal quality? No. No. I mean, when, when I'm picking, you know, a, a regular wine that I, that I want to enjoy, uh, a lot of the times I, I don't necessarily look at the price tag because I've had bo- bottles of wine that have been, you know, had a huge price tag that I didn't enjoy as much as ones that were you know, more in my price range. Um, I think something like ice wine, when you're going for those bottles that, that, you know, follow all of those VQA regulations, they're going to have a, a higher price point because, because of the risk that, um, that's associated with it. So they are just generally priced um, higher than, than typical wines. But I, I would say that definitely price point doesn't equate to quality. That's why I like doing, um, you know, blind, blind taste tests with people and seeing which, what bottles of wine or which glass of wine they like the best. And oftentimes they're surprised that it's not the super expensive bottle that they've, they've picked as their favorite wine. I, I love that you say that. I love that you say that because you're someone who, you know, you know your way around. I don't want to, it sounds like you're an alcoholic. I'm not saying it. When I say you know your way around your wine, but you do, you're an expert in this, but yeah. it, there are so many people and I've tried this myself with other things where you think, oh, I must have a pretty advanced palate. And then you taste something and the thing you like is the cheapest one. You go, oh, I must yeah. be, I'm, I'm a rube. I, I mean, what, how can I like this one when it's not the expensive one? I must be some sort of low class idiot. <laughs> but it's not it's not uncommon for people to like something that isn't necessarily the most expensive. No, that's absolutely right. And everyone's palates are different. And, you know, I might like a, a style of wine that's different from the one you like. That's why, you know, that's part of why I love teaching people and talking to people and doing tastings with people with wine, because it's just such an experiment to see what people are really interested in. I'm convinced that if I were ever to open a winery, the secret to selling wine is not the taste at all. It's coming up with a really cool label that'll make everyone in the store buy my wine and then they'll be fine with it when they get it home. 
You know what? It does have a big impact. There's actually a researcher at Brock University who specifically studies consumer behavior and and different things that are on the wine label and how that changes people's perception and and you know why they decide to choose a bottle of wine. It has a huge impact. <laughs> I, I was just reading this week that there's one, and I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's something to do with a criminal, the name of it. And if you hold your phone up to it, your camera on the phone, mm-hmm. the, the label becomes animated and starts talking yeah. on your phone. And like an augmented reality. A yes. lot of people are, are starting to do that. It's very cool. I've seen that where it kind of pops out and tells the story of, of that winery and of the wine. Yeah, it's really, we're seeing a lot of really cool things with technology, especially when it comes to wine labels. Yeah, for, the, for that to happen in the past, for your, your label to start talking to you, you usually had to have two or three bottles in you already. <laughs> now now right. it's actually happening. Uh, just before I let you go, it's called ice wine. Yes. Is it normally when you have, I mean, white wine, we drink cold, red wine, you drink room temperature. And the mm-hmm. idea is because you, if it's warmer, you're not dulling your taste buds and you can taste everything. How mm-hmm. are you supposed to drink ice wine? Freezing cold? Yeah, I would chill it. Not not super cold because the colder it is, the, you sort of can't pick out all those flavors. But yes, nice, nicely chilled. And for And my suggestion for you is to try a Cabernet Franc ice wine with some nice dark chocolate and then you tell me if your your perceptions have changed on ice wine and if you if you enjoy that because that for me is the ultimate combination cabernet franc ice wine which is a red ice wine and some dark chocolate it's it's perfect noted noted <laughs> and we'll be back in touch with um with the, we'll send you the bill okay. uh, Britt Dixon uh, we really appreciate the time today thanks for doing this yeah no problem thanks the uh, Niagara Ice Wine Festival as i say goes on through January this is not a paid announcement But it is a cool event that goes on. And again, um, some of you are thinking, you've only had ice wine once. Yes, I've only had ice wine once. But you know what? I would absolutely have it again because it was really good. Although, that said, I was talking to someone in the newsroom here today. And they said, no, no, way too sweet. Because apparently, and I didn't realize, I haven't tested the sugar levels. Apparently, it's got twice, I don't know if this is true. I read this. Twice the sugar, naturally occurring, of course, but twice the sugar level of a bottle of Coke, which tells you how sweet some of this ice wine really is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our next guest this evening, our good buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you? I am fine for a Wednesday evening. It is. It's hump day. You're getting there. Friday is almost, Saturday's almost upon us, so... Take, you know, take that to heart and feel better about life and all the rest. Uh, although, here, I am going to ruin your day for a moment, though, because I read this story just before I came into the studio today. Your, your main guy, your lifetime hero, the man after which you model your life, Drake, is the guy, did you read this? It was at his home. That yes, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard hatched their plan mm-hmm. to get Kawhi out of Toronto. And Ka- and Drake says he's the Raptors' main guy? Come on. Well, well I mean, he was courting courting Kawhi. I mean, yeah, okay, come over to my house. I mean, the second you gotta he remember, heard... you got to remember, too, that there was a time, a belief, and actually this actually did happen because Messiah Jerry did discuss it, that there was a possibility of... Paul George and Kawhi staying and then playing as Raptors. So that's true. But the I mean, second so perhaps, that the so second maybe if that had happened, we we would be, you know, much happier. I know. But the second that Drake heard them mention the L.A. Clippers, he should have said, "Guys, pack up. You're out of here. Get out. You're out. You're out of here. <laughs> and don't call back. Lose my number. You're dead to me. That's what should have anyway." All right, let us move along to something a little more serious. That's a true story, though, that apparently Drake is the cause of all the Raptors' problems ever. Um, That's my interpretation. I I added that little last twist. Uh, So uh, a couple things I want to talk about. Mainly, I want to start with this one because there's been a lot of talk. Obviously, baseball has had suspensions now. There's been firings all because of this cheating scandal with stealing signs by the Houston Astros. And we're led to believe that there's going to be a report coming that will point the finger also at the Boston Red Sox because they got rid of their manager today or yesterday as well. My question is this, Bob, but cheating has been a part of baseball from the dawn of time. Baseball players and coaches have cheated forever and always the position that's been taken is, hey, if you can get away with it, nothing wrong with it. And yet in this particular case, the hammer has come down 
And a lot of people saying, you know, it's 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 appropriate. The hammer should have come down. Where's the line in baseball? Where's the cheating line between, oh, that's gamesmanship and that's part of the game and trying to get an advantage and that's not allowed anymore? Well, you kind of just said it and explained it. And the way I observe it, Scott, is the line was crossed with what the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox did. And what happened has happened for for forever in um, baseball in terms of trying to steal signs and watching the catcher. That's gamesmanship. That happens in the sport of football. That's been going on forever. We have uh, players on the ice in the National Hockey League uh, constantly using illegal sticks. That's all gamesmanship. But when it crosses the line is when it becomes uh, organized. I hate to use this comparison, but I will. When it becomes an organized, in some ways, complicated scheme using electronics, I mean, the, the, the length that this team went, the Houston Astros, because they were the first to start it, and uh, Cora was someone that was heavily involved in it, too. Um, the length that, that they went to cheat here crosses all lines of morality of the sport. I mean, when, I mean yeah, there's a replay room. Uh, you're using electronics. It's just, it's just, it was too complicated. And what made it even worse is that the commissioner apparently had things had leaked, and he sent out a memo to all teams in Major League Baseball that this must stop. And those two teams ignored what they were the, the words of the commissioner. And who knows? Maybe there's other teams as well too. But these two teams, World Series champions of those particular years. Uh, they crossed the line. Is it, and I don't even know the answer to this, and it's just dawning on me as I'm about to ask you this question that I don't know the answer. Is stealing signs specifically prohibited in the rule books, or has it always just been part of the unwritten rules of baseball that it's not supposed to be done? It's clearly an unwritten rule. It's something that just happens. And like I said, I think, you know, trying to watch a kid, like, I mean, we all, I mean, anytime, if anyone's played a professional sport, you are looking for some type of advantage. And I'm okay with that. You know, you're trying, if you're the catcher and you're going to keep using the same signs for for the whole game, well, bad on you. Right, I mean, because people are watching what you're what you're what you're trying to do here, so I'm okay with that. But like I said, when it becomes a complicated, organized scheme, and like I said, I'll get it, I'm gonna compare it to this, Scott. I I I, I call back because I have to do it. When it becomes a, an organized, uh, collaborative scheme, kind of like what the Russians did in cheating in the in the Olympics with a with their complicated sort of um, setup that they had to, you know with drug testing, holes in walls. What's the difference? Well, uh, yeah. Okay, so a couple things. Um, As you've been talking, I've just been looking it up, and you're correct. You're 100% correct. There is no written rule that prohibits stealing signs, which then comes to, uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, if the rules don't prohibit stealing signs, I don't know if this then is overkill because things like corking your bat are specifically outlawed in baseball. Mm -hmm. Uh, Using performance enhancing substances is now specifically outlawed in baseball. Uh, Sharpening your spikes and going in spikes high to intimidate a, a second baseman or a shortstop, specifically outlawed in baseball. Should you be getting a one year suspension? and losing draft picks and getting your manager fired for taking advantage of a loophole in the rules? Well, like I said, I, I, I think it's more than a loophole. You, you, you've, you've disrespected the sport, I think. I mean, like I said, I think you've gone too far. Like it, you, you've raised things to a level of untrustworthiness. That is, and, and like I said, and just you're sitting there and scheming, and it's uh, this whole complicated matter, and the beating of the drum. Like it's just, it, it's I, 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 I mean, I am not of the belief that these teams should lose their World Series, but holy mackerel, I've never said this, Scott, but it's very, very, very close to an asterisk situation, very close. How would you like to be the L.A. Dodgers that lost? During the, and we're probably a victim of this scheming going on by the Astros and the Red Sox, and you lost to those two teams on back-to-back years in the World Series. 
What about though? Okay, so you're right that there's been a lot of scheming and, and collaboration and organization going into this, but is it different from a team that has its front office using different statistics and different metrics to measure a player because we feel we can have an advantage that way? That involves a lot of scheming and a lot of organization. Yeah, but you're not breaking the rules by, by, by analyzing. That's a pure analysis of a player. That's all that is. That's not affecting the game itself. You're just, you're looking, you know, you may be a team that plays in a particular type of ballpark or you have a manager that likes to play a particular type of baseball and you're looking for a particular type of players. And I think, you know, more than just, you know, batting average and on-base percentage, you know, smart people have come up with these analytics. I don't know if I'm a huge fan of them all the time because I like, I like the eye test in some ways, whether in all sports. Uh, and and if you, the way sports is, I mean, that at a professional level, there's a full analysis of a player's ability. And uh, if that goes into what, uh, you know, an, uh, that type of situation, I think I'm okay with using analytics to, you know, to use a play. But it's not, you're not cheating. And, and for, for the record, I am arguing devil's advocate because I do agree with your position here. And I'll tell you why I agree with it. And it's a little bit different from why you said it. I have no issue with finding a loophole in the rules. And if the loophole exists and it's not against the rules, it's only the unwritten rules, but it helps you win. I'm okay with that. The difference in this particular case is that in all those other cases, theoretically, both teams can cheat in the same way. The option for them, if they can get away with it, is to do it the same here where you've put specific technology into your home ballpark where the other team can't have the same opportunity to be Back sneaky. To you, yes. That to me is the difference. If you want to steal signs, even though it's against the unwritten rules and the other team can do the same thing equally, I'm okay with it then. This though was a different level because you had created an advantage the other team couldn't have even if they had tried to do it. Yeah. And that's, uh, that, to me, is where the difference comes. You know, you always talk about honor in sports, and I, I think this, this absolutely crosses the line of uh, any type of honor in sport. And um, like I said, I agree with you that in all sports, there's someone looking for an advantage or maybe even some type of gamesmanship, and we use that word loosely. But to me, this was just, uh, I mean, really? I mean, in my opinion, the punishment that was issued to the Houston Astros is, and I know there's a lot of CBA stuff and union stuff. I mean, you can only find them a certain amount. I mean, I, I thought, I thought they, I thought they got off light. Well, I don't disagree with the asterisk thing either. In fact, I would go further than that. And and here's why. And I talked about it with Bill Kelly this morning on his show. If you, when Ben Johnson broke the rules and he got caught, he had his title taken away. Yep. And and the other example I use is if you go to court and let's say, Bubba, you were a police officer and you went into a house without a search warrant and found some incriminating evidence and tried to bring that to court. Mistrial. Well, the, 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 the phrase they use is it's the fruit of the poisonous tree. And because you didn't have the search warrant, the evidence therefore was not gathered fairly or legally and therefore any inference you can draw or conclusion you can draw from that evidence cannot be allowed. Well, so if you win a championship based on cheating, that championship to me should be irrelevant or should be not allowed. It should become uh, wiped out. So look, I I don't think you can award the Dodgers those two championships because they didn't win, but I think you can take away the Astros and the Red Sox championships and just make them a year we had no champion. Yeah, you just yeah, and you just basically said there was no champion that year. It's been vacated. It's been vacated. Uh, you know what? I, again, that's a that's a really really. There's your strictest punishment. Like your name is take being taken off taken off this trophy. That said, you want to know something? For many of these players and for those teams, in the eyes of most of baseball fans, I think that's already happened. And the biggest thing is going to be there are guys on both the Red Sox and on the Astros who are excellent players who may be on a trajectory to be going towards Hall of Fame numbers, early stages. If this year, when the punishments are coming down and you can't do those things anymore, if their numbers drop way off, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, man, those players, and you know who I'm talking about and they know who I'm talking about and everyone knows, (laughs) those players, the, the... 
cynicism and skepticism about how they put up those numbers are is going to be huge. Sure. It's going I to mean, be huge. To your point, Carlos Beltran, I, I heard this discussion earlier today on a, on a sports talk show, and he's a player that is right there on the verge, I mean, because he's you know more of a veteran player, and he's put up Hall of Fame-like numbers. Um, that has to be reexamined at this point. Well, Alex Rodriguez probably is not going into the Hall of Fame because of his drug use, because he cheated. He sure, is what? he is inarguably the greatest shortstop offensively, anyway, of all time. Well, without doubt, and and it's just an unbelievable uh, the blend of his body, his athleticism. I don't know if we at, at that time. I don't know if we had ever seen anything like it. You're totally correct. And yet, he probably will not go in because voters are saying he cheated. Well, so there's your. Your Carlos Beltran, as you use that argument example now, and and it becomes even more complicated because now he's the manager of the New York Mets. Uh, you got to know the Mets are going to be being watched with a fine tooth comb Absolutely. this year to see if they're doing anything that is suspicious. I don't. I mean, we'll see. I, I don't expect anything to happen to him there, but who knows if the Mets look at this and go, "Ah, oh, we can't even have that." I mean, who knows? Who knows uh, where this thing you know, goes? You know, you're funny. You're you're you're, you're kind of right there, but it's it's funny because. Um, there has been word that these two teams have been targeted, Boston and, and Houston. But everything I hear and read says there are other teams that have been named in this report. How severe the amount of cheating, I'll use that word, was going on, I mean, we don't know because it's in sealed documents. If you remember and go a little bit back, and I, I think you and I have discussed this on your very show the Blue Jays at one point were called out by the Chicago White Sox for a type of scheme that was going on at Rogers Center. They accused the Jays of having uh, cameras in the outfield. Or or someone, a spotter or someone out yep. there that was sending signs the of some the, kind. The man in the white, uh, yeah. Yeah. white uh, uniform. Yeah, well, uh, look, we, we, that I've seen so far, the Jays have not been named. Um, you know, let, let's hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, if for a bunch of reasons, but one of them would be, you know, Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins are not the most popular guys in the world right now. Imagine if somehow now they were. Well, this was going on before these guys. Were I understand that. I understand that. But somehow, you know, they're the guys in there now and they're the <laughs> ones who have to crack down and it's, it's not going to be pretty. Hey, uh, we only have a minute or two left here. I want to ask you one more thing about this. Gerard Gallant was fired today in the NHL. Wow. Who uh, he was? He was the guy who was the coach of the Vegas Golden Knights two years ago. In their first year, he goes to the finals. Last year, they lost in the first round. Could have won that. It was a very close round. And anyway, uh, this year they're basically in a playoff position, and he is gone. And this is the shocking part about this: there are now six or seven—I can't remember because it might be seven—seven seven. Seven coaches with less seniority in the NHL than Sheldon Keefe. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Seven have been fired this year. Yeah, but there are seven coaches behind Sheldon That's Keith crazy. in seniority in the he, NHL. He, he, and he seemed like he was only hired half an hour ago. That's what he said. He's had a cup of coffee in the National Hockey League. It's crazy. You know, like, I don't know what's going on in the National Hockey League in terms of security. And, you know, I, I actually rolled a clip of uh, the McCrimmon, who's a general manager, just talking about that he had a feeling of what was going on with the team. I'm like, what? Like, is there, is there more to this than we wanted, like, we know? Or Because, like, it just seems bizarre. And, yeah, the team was on a little four-game four losing skid or whatever. Well, the Montreal Canadiens have had two eight-game losing skids. Like, I mean, and you know, fly, fire Claude Julien. This, it's a long season. Teams go up and down. He's holding on to a final wild card spot in a very competitive Western Conference. Uh, his team's more of a veteran team, so maybe they heat up in the second half. The whole thing is very bizarre to me. It just and, seems... And to, your, to your point about the, the, the coaches being fired, over the last calendar year, Scott, 18 coaches... Yeah, well, if you want to be an NHL coach, there you go. Don't uh, don't unpack your suitcases and and don't, and don't take a long term lease on your apartment because holy, uh, it, it, I I just like as I say, I don't really get it. And you're right that then you've got Claude Julian, who look I, I like, I respect. He was here as a Hamilton Bulldogs coach. Right. I got to know him a little bit back then. He's a nice guy. I, I'm rooting for him to do well. 
But if anybody is the guy who should be getting fired based on how NHL teams are handling their coaching right now, that's the guy. And yet you look at it and you go, well, maybe he's the last line of defense for uh, Bergevin who figures that if I fire him, then the axe is going to fall on me next. I got to keep that level of (laughs) heat off me. I don't know. But anyway, seven, six or seven coaches with less seniority than Sheldon Keefe right now. That That is just staggering to me. No, anyway, I don't know. That's it's interesting, fine. and I mean that's got to be something. Like you said, the general managers. We explained that with Montreal, and I mean how. I mean, as an owner, I mean yes, you have high expectations. You want to be in competition, but boy, that seems to me to be a lot, a lot of pressure on coaches. And I mean, it's tough enough nowadays as being a coach for you know some of the tough athletes. Now the way you know the fact that they all making more money than the coach. Yep. Maybe some of the attitudes that are out there for some teams and some sports. But holy mackerel, that just really devalues the, 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 the coaching profession, in my opinion. Well, no kidding. Argument. And if you are a coach and you go out and do your grocery shoppings, grocery shopping, don't buy any yellow bananas because no, uh, gosh, no. you won't have time to eat them before you're on the move. <laughs> uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, always appreciate it, sir. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me. You can catch Bubba tonight on CHCH, 11 o'clock, weather and sports and who knows what else he'll be doing. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.